Father, it feels like we live in a world just packed with broken hearts. It's a prison. Sometimes, Lord God, it feels like we're rotting here. And so we want to be free. We want you to free us. And so, Lord God, would you send your spirit and would you help us to preach? Set us free, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Colonel, Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut cases. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had markers inside the phony transport! Your Honor, you doctored the logbook! Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor! Consider yourself in contempt! Colonel Jessup! Did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives, and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. You know that line, don't you? That's uh, Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men playing Colonel Jessup. And he thinks that he saves lives. And Tom Cruise, the lawyer, also thinks he saves lives. So at a certain point in the trial, Colonel Jessup just yells, you can't handle the truth. And if you saw the movie, you know that in a few minutes, he can't handle the truth. And sometimes I wonder if any of us can handle the truth. It's an iconic line, and I kept thinking about it this week because it turns out that Jesus said it first. John chapter 16, verse 12, uh, our, in our text for the morning. I, I still have many things to say to you, says Jesus, but you cannot bear them now. And then he starts talking about the spirit of truth. And so what are the things that they could not bear? What is the truth that we cannot handle? It's Mother's Day, and you know, Jesus has uh, just addressed the disciples as little children, and so I was just asking this question. What is it that mothers don't tell little children? Don't tell them because, well, you know, it's just too much for them to handle. Number one, bad things. Right? I mean, we don't let the kids watch scary movies or the 10 o'clock news because little children just can't bear the knowledge of evil. And sometimes the knowledge of good. I mean, when uh, Susan and I when, I, when our kids were, were little, sometimes those were the things we wouldn't tell them, like we're going to the zoo tomorrow. Or in the spring, we're going to Disney World. I mean, they just couldn't handle it. They would get so excited. They wouldn't sleep, and they just go insane with, with longing. Some news was just too good to bear. Some gifts were just too good to handle. 
I discovered this amazing reality that the better the gifts on Christmas morning, the worse the fighting by Christmas afternoon. We had uh, four, well, we still have four children. They're older now. But uh, the greater the gifts, the greater the insecurity. Does mom love her more than me? How come my gift isn't as good as his? Sometimes we got him just one big present, like a punching bag or a trampoline, one, one big gift to share, or perhaps a ball or a game to share. And that was a crisis, because each wanted to possess the game. But unless you share the game, the game's no fun, because that's the point of the game, playing with someone, the name of the game. Last time we talked about the name of the game, and I suggested that maybe it's not beating your neighbor, but loving your neighbor. Vince Lombardi said that's what makes a great football team, guys that love each other. So one guy's strength complements another guy's weakness and vice versa. And in the process, you sometimes beat a common foe. And humanity has a common foe, but the foe is not flesh and blood. It's evil. Anyway, I used to play games in the basement with my kids. We'd play four square, even basketball, but I mounted the basket like four feet above the ground so I could slam dunk. Sometimes we'd just uh, play, you know, pass the ball, and so we'd just be having a great time, having fun, laughing, and then someone would pass the ball to Coleman. He's my youngest, and he would get so excited, so elated that he had the ball, he'd just hang on to the ball and run away with the ball. And when we try to get the ball back, he'd start crying and get angry and all upset. And so sometimes we'd just leave him there with the ball. He'd run off in the corner and sit there with the ball. But then an amazing thing happened. What had seemed so incredible and so wonderful and so amazing, only a few moments before, after a minute or two, just became this cheap piece of plastic. The joy isn't in the ball. But passing the ball, that's the name of the game, love. Well, what if your house is like that ball? What if your house, your car, your income, your skills, your talents, your gifts, your life, your knowledge, your goodness, even your faith, what if it's all like that plastic ball? Your gifts and strengths are meant to complement another weaknesses, and if you hang on to them, it's death. But if you share them, if you pass them, you begin to experience life, even ecstasy. And I mean ecstasy. We're talking about truth that we cannot handle, and... Uh, Truths that parents usually guard little children from, knowledge of certain things, like number one, really bad things. Number two, really good things. And number three, sex. <laughs> Which can be bad or really, really, really good. Ecstasy. Where two bodies are bound in a sacrament guarded by a covenant. Where two become one flesh, where a fullness fills an emptiness, and an emptiness invites a fullness. Where difference isn't a threat or a curse, but a promise and a blessing. Where life is made, fruit is born, communion in a temple. You see, that's a truth that we cannot bear when we're four years old. Our bodies, minds, and heart are, 
our temple, our temple has not yet been prepared for such communion. Maybe we're born again as children. But being prepared in this world for a communion, a communion greater than our wildest imaginations. John 6, 15. It's, John's, or it's Jesus last night with, with his disciples, and he says this. I did not say these things to you. Remember, we talked about last week about being hated by the world. I did not say them to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Remember, he goes away to prepare a place, but we discovered that that place is us. We are his temple. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, the helper. God said to Adam, when he was still a he-she, remember? I will make a helper fit for you. And then to make a, a long story short, it, it turns out that we, all of us, are the bride, and Jesus is the eschatos Adam, the bridegroom, the helper fit for us. Jesus is our, our helper, and in the last chapter, he said he's going to send another helper, his spirit, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And as soon as I say, Holy Spirit, I found that people start to, like, freak out and get all insecure. They think about people shaking and, and weird guys on TV and, and people stressed, all stressed and insecure about gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul writes that the one spirit gave different gifts to each member of the body to complement and complete the rest. And yet no sooner than the spirit gives them that, than, than we tend to like want to possess them. And we start fighting over them and form denominations around each one of them. It's like we can't handle the gifts of the spirit. But let me ask you this question. What is the work I mean, what's the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit all about? What's the work of the Holy Spirit? Making people shake. Making people speak in tongues. Shibata Honda, Shibata Honda, Shibata Honda. Is it healing people on late night TV in order to increase ratings? We know the Spirit can do and does do all of that. But what's the work of the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convince. The word can also be translated uh, convict or expose the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged present tense is judged I still have many things to say to you 
but you cannot bear them now. You cannot handle the truth now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth or all the truth. What's the truth we can't handle? Well, he says the spirit of truth will convict or convince the world, the world concerning sin. Maybe that's a truth that we really can't handle. I mean, we, we block it out. The reality of evil. You know, Osama bin Laden murdered 2,977 civilians on September 11, 2001. And we now know that he was plotting the death of many, many, many more. And, and so I'm glad that he's dead. And something in us tells us that he should be dead. He must be dead. That evil should be utterly, completely annihilated and destroyed. This is the cover of the New York Daily News last week. Rot in hell. I was listening to a New York City policeman or fireman being interviewed, and he said on the radio, we all just want him to rot in hell, rot in hell. And I, and I get that. Bin Laden broke that man's heart. And now he wants to tear Bin Laden's world apart. Rotten hell. And, and I suspect that he is rotting in Sheol, Hades, Tehom, the deep. Because that's where the Navy dumped his body, in, into the deep. He's literally rotting in the deep. You see, hell is an English word. I mean, you, you can check this out, but it really has no, the English word hell really has no biblical equivalent. But according to scripture, it, it's likely, I think, that Osama bin, Rod, bin Laden is, is rotting in Hades. And, and this we also know, that one day he will be exposed to the eternal consuming fire, the judgment of God. The slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. Jesus Christ and him crucified. What exactly, exactly happens then is a bit beyond us, but you can rest assured in this. All evil will be utterly, completely, absolutely destroyed by our God. And what is evil? Well, it's live, spelled backwards, it's an absence of love, an absence of feeling for another, an absence of compassion. Evil is a lack of passion for another. Hey, uh, check this out. This is a graph of civilian casualties since the morning of September 11th, 2001. Now, you should uh, research all of this because statistics are hard to come by accurately in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the numbers vary between something like a couple hundred thousand to two million. This graph uses one million for the number of civilians killed in Afghanistan and Iraq since September 11th. And so you see blue and the green 
represent that number. Civilians killed in Afghanistan, in Iraq, since September 11th, and the red, that represents the number killed in the United States of America on September 11th. The number of people represented by the blue and the green is almost 300, or no, more than 300 times greater than the number represented by the red. And, and I want you to hear me. I do not know what earthly governments should do. I don't. And you can debate the, the statistics, the numbers, but no matter what numbers you use, I mean, if they're at all honest, no matter what numbers you use, I find this to be a truth rather hard to handle. You might say, well, okay, fine, but Al-Qaeda started it with the death of 3,000 3, innocent civilians. Well, they might say, no, Israel. Britain and the United States started it with the death and exile of millions of innocent Palestinians. And Israel would say, we didn't start it. Germany started it with the death of six million innocent Jews. And Germany might say, well, I'm sorry, but we lost 2.5 innocent civilians in, in, in World War I, and you all shafted us in the Treaty of Versailles. And you could just keep going back and back and back through history doing the same thing until you arrived at two brothers, Cain and Abel. And you know who they'd blame? Their mom. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, Eve. <laughs> I mean, with one noteworthy exception, it turns out that there are no innocent victims. And that's why we will all die. And should die. And it's not just the extent of evil, but the, the quality of evil. Over the last several years, I really have been utterly traumatized praying for three or, or four, women, four women I know that were raised in systems or families, uh, covens of, of satanic ritual abuse. And over and over again, this has been my question to God. I mean, in seriousness, God, why didn't you just destroy them? Why did you just not destroy them all? And you know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, he did. Whole societies saturated with demonic oppression, rape, child sacrifice, were, quote, devoted to destruction. Haram, I think is how you say it in, in the Hebrew. Devoted to destruction. But the greatest mystery is, why not all devoted to destruction? Why not all? You know, I've listened to demons manifest. That, that's weird for some, but, but I have. I've listened to them manifest and speak lies, and then in horror realize that I've lived my life by some of those very same lies. And like those, those evil men in those places, I'm trapped in that same body of flesh. You see, my flesh feels only its own pain. It feels only its own pleasure, its own passion. My flesh literally feeds on death. We call it food. 
My pride, my ego, literally feeds on the failure of others. My flesh must be destroyed. St. Paul says flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. All the prophets agree it will be destroyed and the earth consumed by fire. You see, the knowledge of evil, that we are totally depraved, that we are bad. I mean, that's just a truth very hard to handle. But Jesus says, the Spirit will convince the world concerning sin, Spirit of truth. We'll convince the world concerning sin that they do not believe in, in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. We see the bad in us when we see the good that is Jesus. And when we see Jesus the good, the righteousness of Christ is just overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is so good that on the cross he makes himself last so that we would be first. On his tree, he bears the sins of the entire world. On the tree, he chooses to feel every sorrow ever born, bear every wound ever inflicted, suffer every punishment ever earned by every sin ever committed. On the tree, he chooses to love absolutely. It's his passion. The righteousness of Christ. It's the offering accepted by the Father. So when Jesus gives everything, loves absolutely, the Father receives him, resurrected from the dead. One, how bad we are, and two, how good Jesus is, that's a truth we just can't handle. How bad we are, how good Jesus is, and three, how great is the judgment of God. John has revealed that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the judgment of this world, which casts out the ruler of this world, the judgment that is a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. Jesus is the sin offering. We talked about that last, or that he's a scapegoat. He's a sin offering. He's a scapegoat that takes away the sins of the world. That's what John says. He takes away your sins. And Jesus is the spotless lamb. He's the perfect offering. And he gives his righteousness to you, which is your offering then to the Father. He takes your evil and he gives to you his good. And that's his judgment, which destroys the evil and replaces it with good. So in the very place of Simon the coward, Jesus creates Peter the rock. In the very place of Saul the Pharisee, Jesus creates Paul the apostle of grace. And he writes, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, if your family had been persecuted by Saul, tortured by Saul, if you had relatives that had been murdered by Saul, that, that might be a truth rather hard for you to handle. No longer I, but Christ who, who lives in me. Hard to, God's judgment of grace that destroys the work of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, says John. Not preserve the works of the devil, 
in some kind of underground torture chamber. No, he destroys the work of the devil at his cross. George MacDonald wrote this, Annihilation itself is no death to evil. Only good where evil was is evil dead. An evil thing must live with its evil until it chooses to be good. That alone is the slaying of evil. When it chooses to be good. Well, how can we who are evil choose to be good? Jesus just said it. You didn't choose me. I chose you to bear fruit, to make the good choice, faith, hope, love. On the cross, he delivers up his spirit, which is sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's, that's the good choice. Paul even says, as two become one flesh, so you become one spirit with him. That's wild. Listen to this again. The spirit will convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you're convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you're saved. Saved by grace through faith, and this faith not of yourselves. It's the gift of the gift of God. God is salvation. The name Jesus literally means God is salvation. God is salvation. That's a truth we just can't seem to handle. But maybe it can handle us. Maybe it is handling us. In fact, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Convincing the world to believe the truth. That's the Spirit's work. Not our work. As soon as we think it's our work, we produce an inquisition. Or a crusade or an Osama bin Laden, or a Saul of Tarsus. I testified it to, to the truth. I testified to the truth, but, but the truth does the saving. When we control the truth, when we handle the truth, we end up crucifying the truth, just like the Pharisees, just like those Roman centurions. And so, yeah, the truth is hard to bear. But check this out. The truth bears us. The truth bears all things, believes all things. I don't think a lie is a thing. The truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and Jesus is the truth. And he bears me. God is salvation. And not just my salvation or, or our salvation, and I suspect that this is what the disciples just could not bear to hear that night. That night that the Pharisees plotted against Jesus and the Roman centurions sharpened their spears and cut wood for crosses. That night. Verse 12. That night he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
And yet Jesus just said, all that I've heard from my Father, I've, I've made known to you. So see, he's told them this stuff. It just hasn't sunk in. The spirit of truth will make it sink in. And check this out. We have a record of it sinking in. It's called the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, do you remember what, fall, what happens? The spirit falls on the church. And all these foreigners are just amazed that they hear the gospel spoken in their own language. And then Peter gets up in the power of the Spirit and he preaches a sermon and he quotes from the prophet Joel as if the last days or the last day is this day. Somehow the last day is here. Is saying in the last days the Spirit will pour out his, himself. The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. All flesh. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 8. Peter is just shocked that the Spirit falls on Samaritans. Now, Jesus had told them this stuff, right? But he's shocked that the Spirit would fall on Samaritans. Remember, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Acts 9, a sinner, a sinner worse than Osama bin Laden. Quote, the chief of sinners. He's converted and filled with the Spirit. The church can't even believe it without miraculous help from the Holy Spirit. The man was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the guys who got Jesus crucified, a Pharisee of Pharisees who literally terrorized the early church with persecution and death. His name was Saul, but you know of him as Paul, the guy who wrote the Bible. Acts chapter 10 and 11. The Spirit forces Peter to then go to Caesarea. That literally means Caesar town. And there he witnesses the Holy Spirit fall on a Roman centurion. And all his household, before they're even baptized, before they even said the sinner's prayer, before they even signed up for Sunday school, a Roman centurion. Now remember, Peter had seen these guys like rape his country, crucify his best friend, and probably crucify scores of others that he loved and a voice says Peter what God has cleansed you must not call common in Acts 15 the early church holds the Jerusalem council because they're trying to figure out what to do with all these heathen Gentiles that are becoming Christ followers and James stands up and he quotes Amos it is written I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David that's Jesus and us his body I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. John 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. The Spirit will take what is mine which is all that the Father has, and declare it to you. Do you hear that? 
I mean, I read a bunch of commentaries this week, and, and all of them just kind of like gloss over these verses as, I, I, like they just couldn't, they couldn't bear it. God has all things. He gives them to Jesus, and the Spirit declares them to us. Does that mean the Spirit just says, hey, check out all the things that Jesus has got, or is it something more? I think it's something more. Listen to Paul in Corinthians telling him to stop fighting over spiritual gifts and their separate little factions. He writes this, let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. That's what he says. All things are yours, whether Paul or or Apollos, or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You see, the Spirit is revealing this truth. All things are yours. That's hard for us to handle. Because we get... One little gift, and, and like Coleman, sitting in the corner with this little ball, we, we, get, we get one gift, we take it to a corner, and we turn it into hell, because we haven't learned the name of the game. Love. Maybe a person could receive all things and enjoy no thing, because they haven't learned the name of the game. Love. And love poured out. Grace. Perhaps the Spirit comes to give us the capacity to enjoy all things. To give us faith in grace. And so, yeah, the, the Spirit gives gifts. But the greatest gift is Jesus God is salvation. But Jesus is not a gift I can simply keep to myself while still enjoying the game. The joy is in giving Christ and receiving Christ. Offering grace and receiving grace. Like body parts constantly offer blood and receive blood, one from another. Offer life and receive life. Paul writes that we are the body of Christ and individual members thereof. Each part owns the whole. In other words, each part feels the pain of all. And each part feels the pleasure of all. Yet a healthy body feels no pain. Only pleasure. Because it's one. On the cross, Jesus bore the pain of every broken and severed member of his body and then delivered up his spirit, which descended into his body and makes us one, makes us healthy and whole. And so my flesh, you see, only feels its own pain, and my flesh only feels its own pleasure. But in heaven, just maybe, perhaps, I'll feel your pleasure. And all pleasure. I mean, can you imagine that? The sheer pleasure of tasting like eight, nine, ten billion cheeseburgers all at once. <laughs> wow, awesome. Or the joy of experiencing four, five, six billion honeymoons all at once. The joy of every bride surrendered to her groom. The joy of every sinner believing grace. The ecstasy of every empty longing filled with love. You know, the Bible ends with this incredible picture that is way more than a picture. It's the bride at her wedding banquet, ready for her groom. We are the bride. 
and Jesus is the groom. And that's a truth that the immature find rather hard to handle. Well, anyway, Jesus says, all the Father has is mine. And then check this out. Next chapter, 17, 2. Jesus prays, Father, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And, and, and Jesus just said, all the, the Father has is mine. Do you realize that all those people in the Old Testament that were devoted to destruction, haram, or haram, were in fact offered to God as a burnt sacrifice, sacred and holy to him, that's what the word means. They were offered to God, and so they're gods. And then according to this scripture, they are given to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. The prophets say, God will destroy all and remake all. It happens on the day of the Lord. And it happens at the cross. You see, one day every person must face Jesus and his cross. Every person must face the tree where evil is destroyed. And goodness is given us a gift. And we come to know the judgment of God. Grace. All that the Father has is mine. The Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. Would that include Osama bin Laden? That may be a truth we just can't handle right now. But you know, if it does include Osama bin Laden, he won't be the same. He'll have a new heart and a new spirit, and he won't shut up. He won't shut up. He won't stop talking about Jesus. God is salvation. All the, the Father has, would, would that include Osama bin Laden? Well, I do know this. I know it includes a bunch of Samaritans. And it includes some Roman centurions, and those guys could be nasty guys. And it includes the chief of sinners, the worst sinner that ever walked the face of this earth. The Spirit is declaring them to you, God's trophies of grace. And you'll receive them. Even more, you will commune with them. I mean, you will share your joy, how Jesus saved you, amazing grace. And they will share their joy with you, how Jesus saved them, amazing grace. And the worse the sin, the more amazing the grace. It will be a communion of grace that we call the kingdom of heaven. I think that's the truth. We cannot yet handle ecstatic communion with all humanity filled with Christ. It's the passion of the Christ. He bears our temporal pain and gives us his 
eternal pleasure. We cannot yet bear that, or even the thought of that. For we don't really believe that we're that evil. And we don't really believe that Jesus is that good. And we don't really believe that the judgment of God is that powerful. For we don't really believe, you see, that God is salvation for us. And so we have a hard time believing that God is salvation for others. You know, the angel Gabriel told Mother Mary, for God, nothing will be impossible. Scripture reveals that we, the church, are Christ's mother. And I think that, that this is the truth we still find just so hard to handle. That's my favorite clip in the Passion of the Christ. Jesus is being enthroned upon his cross. And he speaks to his mother. See, look, I'm making all things new. And John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. When he hears the Lord, the Passover lamb speaking, the slaughtered lamb speaking from his throne to his church, behold, I'm making all things new. It's the passion of the Christ, and we can't handle the truth. But here's the good news. The truth is handling us. I know, yeah, one last little thing before we close. Jesus said, check this out, he said, the measure you give is the measure you receive. That may be why some of us feel sometimes like we're kind of just rotting in hell. But this is the gospel. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. For on the night that the truth was delivered up by us, Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, the very heart of God, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In the morning, he would be enthroned. In the morning, in the words of John, he would be lifted up, lifted up on his cross where he would cry out, it is finished.
and then he would breathe his last. And as John puts it, deliver up his spirit. His spirit, which would descend into his people, crying, Abba, Father, the good choice. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. They're both the love of God poured out for you. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, would you pray this prayer? Let's just pray it together real quick, okay? If you, if you, if you can, with just a mustard seed of faith, just pray this prayer. We're gonna ask the spirit of truth to fill us, okay? In the name of Jesus, spirit of truth, fall on us. Fill us. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so that is our prayer. Spirit of truth, fall afresh on us. Jesus, you are the truth. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. And we are your sanctuary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me sum up. Old Testament, you can't handle the truth. New Testament, the truth is handling you. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the spirit of truth will declare all things to you. So you see, the truth is your friend. I know it hurts sometimes, but the truth is your friend. So that means every day, maybe you ought to surrender yourself to the truth, expose yourself to the truth, and just say, gosh, God, I, my, I'm just not very good. I'm bad. Oh, but Jesus, you're, you're good. And so judge me. Save me. Redeem me. Cut out the bad and fill it with the good and create me in your image the image of truth. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel, invite the gospel, and live the gospel. Amen.